Good, well we come, sadly, really to our last talk. Uh, and as, as Megan so cleverly said, we're going to, we're going to, this talk we're going to think about evangelism. Looking out, looking outwards to people who don't know Jesus. I mean, look at that, uh, the end of verse 3 that we've just sung. Let his love flow out to others. Let them feel the Saviour's care that they too may know his welcome and his countless blessings share. I mean, how, how could we claim to love Jesus and not want to declare his glory to people who don't worship him? How could we claim to love other people and not tell them how to escape God's judgment to come? The, the reality of hell, the reality that Jesus is the only way to escape hell and to live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. That reality, in, in, in some sense, just dictates that, that evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, sort of rises to the surface naturally as the thing to which we are going to commit ourselves. It just naturally does so. But it isn't an accident that I've waited till the last talk to, to speak about this kind of looking outward element. Because the thing is, we are all, I, I imagine most of us, naturally kind of activists. And if we start with evangelism, we always say, oh yeah, okay, cool, what, what do we have to do? And again, we begin to think exclusively in terms of the church being a means to an end. And I've really wanted to kind of slow us down and to help us sort of rethink some things, to get in our heads that it's really true to say that, God, that the church is the end of God's means. So that's why we thought in all these sort of big picture categories about what God has done and what God is doing before we begin to look outwards. And actually, you know, even as we um, talk about evangelism, even as we think about looking outwards, I still very much want us to have the, um, the sort of the communal ideas of church in our minds. I still want us to think in the, in the, the communal category as we think about evangelism. Okay. We're going, what we're going to do in this talk is to look at the relationship between our unity and our evangelism. Okay. And I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna suggest that our unity and our evangelism sort of feed off each other and reinforce each other. Originally I, I, I thought it was kind of a bit of a chicken and egg thing. I've, I've, I've reassessed that. I don't think it's quite as neat as that. But I think there, there is some sort of interrelationship between our unity and our evangelism. So even as we talk about evangelism, we're not, we're not abandoning the communal categories. We're not suddenly thinking um, uh, exclusively individually again. We are still thinking in the communal categories of church. So turn with me, please, will you, to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. This is kind of under the, the first point on your handout, really. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So look how these verses begin. They, they, they're generally regarded, I think, often taken as, as the key verses in the book of Philippians. Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I don't remember, that's very similar to how Paul began that passage in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4 it was, 
I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Here, it is whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the Philippian church was, was a real sort of gem of a church in Paul's time. They, they were great. They, they supported Paul financially by, by giving him money on his missionary endeavours and even sent one of their own, one of their, the congregation me- uh, members, Pacoditus, who we'll look at later, to, to look after Paul and to support him. Paul knows that even in a good church, even in a great church, there's no room for complacency. There's no room uh, for complacency about unity. Even in a great church, there is a, there's always the risk of disharmony. Uh, our church unity, after all, is, is really just as fragile as our own egos, isn't it? Sort of on a day-to-day level. Even in a good church, and perhaps especially in a good church, where we are sort of concerned to reach out, there's always the fear that we will bottle it and keep our heads below the parapet to avoid uh, trouble and persecution. And so Paul writes, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, (coughs) contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So it seems to be when Paul, when Paul's saying to the Philippians, you know, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, he's got two big things in mind from verses 27 and 28. Did you spot them? One is the idea of unity, which is why he says, you know, contending as one man, uh, wanting to stand firm in one spirit. So it's the idea of unity. And the other is the idea of contending for the gospel. Uh, so I want you to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man, for the faith of the gospel. Um, someone asked me last week, does, is contending here sort of primarily a defensive thing? Uh, I, I don't think in reality, and certainly in Paul's mind, he draws much of a distinction between offence and defence when it comes to the gospel. When he's contending for the gospel, he's also uh, wanting to, to proclaim the gospel. Um, <clears throat> I can't, where does he put it? In chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about defending and confirming the gospel. I think in Paul's mind, when he says contending, but it's offence and defence. He's got two two ideas, the the unity and the idea of proclaiming the gospel. And so that's how I've, that's what I think the summary is, the two points we're going to look at in turn. Paul says, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel means a concern for church unity founded on humility, and a concern for proclaiming a gospel founded on grace. And we'll look at those in turn. For the first thing, Paul says, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel means a concern for church unity founded on humility. One of Paul's abiding concerns for the Philippian church was that they live out, that they maintain this unity that Christ has already worked for them. And so actually, it's the same, same verses that Ruth just read to us. Have a look at how he in- encourages them in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 2, verses <coughs> 1 to 4. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, 
if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and I think he's kind of using if rhetorically here, sort of saying, you know, given that this is the case. Verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit. Here we go, things I find really challenging. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, if we are concerned for guarding the unity that is already ours in Christ, he says, we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. And it's, it's, that, it's that word nothing that I find staggering and terrifying, really. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. As a church, we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition, whether that's you know, in the music group, how we come across up front, whether that's reading or praying or preaching, how we conduct ourselves in a theological debate or even in conversation. Nothing out of selfish ambition. If, if the Lord were to, to bless any, anyone in, uh, in KG with kids, you know, we're, we're not to you know, do that kind of competitive parenting thing. You sometimes hear about, you know, oh, little Johnny's three and he's just passed grade eight oboe. <laughs> oh, Jemima's four and she's got a place at Cambridge to do maths, you know. Nothing, nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition. How, how, you know, how countercultural that is. I was, um, I was preparing these talks. I was, uh, I was watching, I watched, uh, House of Cards on Netflix. I wasn't watching it while I was preparing the talks, you know. But, uh, it's great. It's great. It's, it's a fascinating sort of character study about greed and, and ruthless ambition. Some bits you need to sort of skip through, but amazing. So it's set in the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. It follows the story of Francis Underwood, a ruthless U.S. congressman. And all his relationships, he's just constantly manipulating people to get what he wants. But the terrifying thing is he's not alone. Everybody else is doing it. Everybody is playing off each other. Ruthless ambition, selfish ambition, to get what they want. And I just such a such a disjunct, you know, watching that and then and reading these verses, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That is the way the world works, it seems. Remember how, remember how Jesus rebuked uh, his disciples, James and John, when they wanted to get those plum seats at his right and left. He said, he sort of made a, a general statement. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Mark 10. I said, really, is the world really that bad? Is it really that sort of selfish and ambitious? Sure. Not, not everyone is like Francis Underwood in the corridors of power in Washington. But you think about it. You think about the snide words in the office. You think about the jockeying for position in the business meeting. I think you don't have to look very far to see that this world does run on selfish ambition, whether that's in Parliament or watching the kids play in the park. There's a sense in which the world seems to Thrive. The world seems to be motivated. The world seems to run on the fuel of selfish ambition. Paul doesn't say 
just tone it down a bit in church. He doesn't say sort of put a Christian veneer on it. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. There is to be none of this in church. Instead, he says, uh, verse 3, then he says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Again, isn't that, isn't that so hard either? It seems to me that everyone has a sort of, um, a sense of the, their own kind of status. Okay, and I'm not, it's not that, it's not that we all sort of walk around being prima donnas. No, it's not that, but each of us kind of has, um, a sense of our, our own rights and our own status. And how excruciating it is when someone doesn't treat us as we think we should be treated. You know, and that, that level, in a sense, is different for different people. It's not that there's a sort of a bar you've got to get above. It's just that we each have that, state, that, that sort of level in us. How painful it is. How much it riles us when we feel like we're not being treated as we deserve to be, be treated. Great. I'm always um, uh, reminded of a funny story about uh, a friend of mine uh, from Durham. Uh, I won't tell you his name. I mean, I'm not I'm not holding him up as a bad example. It's kind of just a funny story, and believe me, he's got he's got many embarrassing stories about me. But um, we'll, we'll call him we'll call him Tom. And he, he's a I, I still see him. He's a love lovely guy. I mean, you you would like him if you met him. He's, he's a great guy. Um, he's 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 very intelligent. Uh, you know, good-looking, sporty, um, and when this story happened, he just he just landed the the lead role in uh, a production of of Greece, you know, Danny Duke. So he yeah, he's one of these guys, very talented, had ev- had everything going for him. Okay, uh, and we'd just gone, we just gone clubbing it. We've been before I was a Christian, Ritzies. Yeah, so <laughs> just, <laughs> just just you come out of Ritzies like, like two in the morning or something like that. Uh, you know it is opposite things kebab shop, bitch. You know it well, I'm sure. And, um, and, and, and my friend Tom, he's trying to he's trying to get a taxi for us all to go back to college. So he's standing there, sort of trying to trying to hail hail uh, taxis, and you know one after the other, and the drives by, and eventually he gets fed up with it, and he just walks into the middle of the road and goes, "Stop! Do you know who I am?" <laughs> and we, you know, we about it, we tease him about it. And as I say, I'm not, I'm not saying that to sort of paint him in a bad light, but it just, when I read a passage like this, it makes me think, actually, for most of us, isn't it true that it doesn't take much? Not, and we're too, we're too polite often for those words to come out of our mouths, but don't those words or those thoughts bubble up inside us when people don't treat us how we think we should be treated? Do you know who I am? I think that's true of most of us. Paul says, says, no, don't don't think like that. Verse 4. Consider others better than yourselves. <coughs> and Paul says, it is that that will protect a church from disunity. It is that sense of humility that will create the unity that helps a church live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because sadly, even in, um, even in Philippians, even in a great church, like in Philippi, there were people who didn't seem to have clocked this. So if you flick on to chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Good. Chapter 4, verse 2. 
Paul says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So Paul feels the need to say all this stuff like back in chapter 2 because even in a great church there are people like these two women who are, who are not doing this, who are not doing nothing out of selfish ambition, who are not in humility considering others better than themselves. Uh, look, I just want to flag something up. It, it, it's brilliant that we, we're um, moving to three services. Absolutely fantastic. We'll talk a bit more about this in a minute. Again, let's not be naive. There, there will be lots of pinch points as we do that. There will be lots of avenues that Satan could try and exploit to explode the unity that we enjoy at the moment at Christchurch Mayfair. Lots of things. I should have been on that rotor. I should have been consulted before that decision was made. I wouldn't have done it like that. Or the flip side, being asked to do things below this status that we think is rightly ours. You know, I shouldn't be the one having to put those chairs out. I shouldn't be the one having to uh, clear those dishes away. Lots of things that Satan could use and exploit. And now look, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not saying that some of those things wouldn't wouldn't be genuine grievances. I'm not saying there won't be mistakes made by those in charge of brokers and all that kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should brush it under the carpet. I'm just I'm saying when those issues raise themselves, and, and they will, almost inevitably as we, as, we, as we move to three services, let's approach those disagreements with each other with that attitude of doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Let's do it with that attitude of, of inhumility considering others better than ourselves. Paul said, even if there are kind of little seed beds of these things in us, that will threaten our unity, that will threaten the extent to which we are able to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And unsurprisingly, as Ruth already told us, Paul says, well look, if you want the example of someone who did do nothing out of selfish ambition, who did in humility consider others better than himself. You have to look no further than the Lord Jesus. It says, verse 5, says to the Philippians what he would say to us, your attitude, this is is chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or another, other translations will be, having this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So saying it would be strange for you to live in any other way because we already have this mind in Christ Jesus, already united to him. It would be strange not to have this sense uh, of humility because we're already in Christ. And he says, verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus of all people who had a right to be treated in a certain way didn't stand on the edge of eternity and say, do you know who I am? Instead, verse 6, or verse 7. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
and I um, I want to preach this uh, this on this passage in Brixton Prison. Uh, said, you know, imagine you guys, imagine if uh, if the Queen came to Brixton Prison, and instead of all the kind of normal pomp and circumstance that surrounds the Queen, I love the Queen by the way, I'm not dissing her. Uh, uh, imagine all the of all the pomp and circumstance. The Queen came along, she put on a pair of marigolds and started slopping out the prisoners' toilets. What what level of condescension that would be. And Paul says, yes, but that is nothing compared to the level of condescension that Christ showed, leaving the glory of heaven and being found in human form. He, made, he became a servant. Actually, it was quite one of the most terrifying experiences in my life, preaching this at Brixton Prison, because uh, I'd forgotten stupidly that the full name of any prison is HM Prison, Her Majesty's Prison. So every prisoner technically is there at the pleasure of Her Majesty. Uh, and very soon I had 120 prisoners chatting and heckling me. Uh, so you guys are a joy to preach to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask me about that afterwards if you're interested. The, the level of condescension that the Queen would have been showing by coming to Brixton and serving those prisoners is nothing. And we see here divinity laying its rights aside. And you see that descent through verses 7 and 8. Humility made himself nothing. Took the nature of a servant. Human likeness. Appearance as a man. Humbled. Obedient to death. Not a glorious death. Not a heroic death. Not a death that secular poets would, would write about. But a humiliating awful, torturous death for the sake of our salvation. We get annoyed when someone slights us uh, and we think we're not treated in the way that we think we deserve to be treated. Look at Jesus' condescension. Look at Jesus' humility. And Paul says, to the extent that we grasp Jesus' humility, we will be humble ourselves. And to the extent that we are humble ourselves, to the extent that unity will be preserved amongst us. And to the extent that unity is preserved amongst us, that is the extent to which we are living as a church in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's our first point. Living a life worthy of the gospel means having a concern for humility founded on unity. Secondly... Living in a manner worthy of the gospel means having a concern, having a concern for proclaiming a gospel founded on grace. That certainly seems to be um, what Paul is urging us in his own example. Have a look down at chapter one, verse twelve. Chapter one, verse twelve. Paul says, "Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel." As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fiercely. Paul is writing this letter from, from prison, the prison in Rome. Yeah, and most of, I think we'd most of us would be feeling pretty sorry for ourselves. But Paul is saying, look, I care so much about the proclamation of the gospel. And he says, you know, in a sense, what, has happened, what he's really concerned about is the fact that his imprisonment has encouraged other people to proclaim the gospel. 
Verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Verse 13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I'm in chains for Christ. Paul's concern, even in prison, his joy, if you like, is that the gospel is being proclaimed. Paul says that in the book of Philippians as, as an example for us to follow. Staggering. And even more, um, verse 15 of chapter 1. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put there for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Some people have taken advantage of the fact that Paul is in prison to stir up trouble, but Paul is not going to sit around worrying about his rights or his status, trying to defend himself. What (coughs) he rejoices in is the fact that the gospel is preached. That is Paul conducting himself in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're to emulate it. Actually, in the book of Philippians, it's not it's not just it's not just Paul who is held up as an example. Obviously, Jesus is, but also Timothy and Epaphroditus. So, click on to chapter two, verse twenty-two. See verse twenty-two. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. That's Timothy in a manner worthy of the gospel, and then Epaphroditus, who, who was a congregation member, to chapter 2, verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. And skipping on to verse 29, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give him. Paul seems to be saying, you know, living in a manner worthy of the gospel means a concern for gospel proclamation. He's not naive. He's not saying we've all got to be carbon copies of each other to the extent that we can with the gifts that we have, the opportunities that we have, and the other responsibilities we have in life. Together, we must be concerned for the proclamation of the gospel. Because what Paul wrote to the the Christians in Philippi is true of us in London. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. Paul Paul says of the Philippians, I'll read from verse 14, Do everything without complaining or grumbling, verse 15, so that you may, may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And if that was true of the Philippians, that's true of us, isn't it? You look around London, are we not living in a crooked and depraved generation in which we are to shine as stars in the universe? Are we not people who are to hold out the word of life corporately? stars in the universe, the people who need it. 
You know, and that is what, that's why we're moving to three services, to maximise what we can do together to reach London with the gospel, to maximise what we can do together to hold out the word of life in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. And not that really any of us will need reminding of it, but let's be clear, what is, what is it, what is that word of life that we are holding out to a crooked and depraved London? Well, more specifically, it is the word of life founded on grace. The word of life about grace. You may know that the issue for the Philippians was that people were trying to, uh, the Jewish people were tempting them to abandon that gospel of grace. They were tempting them to say, no, actually, what you need to do in order to be right with God is to, is to sort of fall back kind of into Judaism, to get circumcised. And Paul says, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare abandon the gospel of grace for anything. And so he says, chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul says this word of life that you hold out is so wonderful and so precious because it isn't based on your own performance or climbing the ladder to God. It is a righteousness that comes from God by faith. And isn't it true that there are a myriad places that the people of London can go to be told how to try and climb that greasy pole towards God. There are myriad places where people can go to try and earn their way to salvation, where people can go to be told, do this, do that. A million places where people can go to be told, actually, uh, you don't need to worry about judgment. God is happy with the things you're doing. Paul says, there, there is one place, there is, there is the church where you can go hear that word of life this is about grace and that is why Paul is so concerned that we hold on to it that we contend for it that we hold it out that we proclaim it that is why we are to give ourselves to gospel proclamation so that's what Paul says to conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel is to be concerned for church unity founded on humility and to proclaim a gospel founded on grace. As I finish, as I said, I just want to just uh, share some thoughts about how those two things, how the unity and the proclamation of the gospel, or you could say unity and evangelism, feed off each other. Okay, I think these are these these principles come from the book of Philippians because there's a there's a sense in which uh, the gospel message itself, the gospel that we proclaim, actually fosters unity. The gospel message we proclaim fosters unity. How could it not do? How could a gospel about grace not foster humility and therefore unity? I mean, we, the, the gospel we proclaim is a gospel that says, look, you can have the courage to take the mask off before God and take the mask off before each other. 
other and admit that we are more wicked than we would ever want to admit to ourselves. The gospel of grace means we can, we can be honest about that. The gospel of grace means that we can know that despite ourselves, not because of ourselves, we are loved and forgiven and cherished by God. The gospel of grace means that we're not trying to compete with each other to get into God's good books. The gospel of grace means that we can be humble. The gospel of grace humbles us. And so the gospel message itself fosters that humility. The gospel message itself fosters that humility which in turn leads to unity. So there's, there's that sort of interplay. The gospel message itself fosters unity. Secondly, I think that the idea of being corporately engaged in evangelism sort of fosters unity. I mean, I think this is a slightly weaker point, it's slightly kind of joining the dots. But even from a sort of a human perspective, it does, that does seem to be the case, doesn't it? When we give ourselves corporately to the task of reaching London with the gospel, that kind of does draw us together. It does pull us in, it does unite us. It, it does sort of give us a, give us a focus. Even that sort of act of uh, evangelism together, I think, does, does draw us together, does unite us. So that's the way the kind of the gospel and evangelism fosters unity. But sort of going back the other way, to the extent that we are a united church, that is a massive signpost to the gospel of grace that we believe and proclaim. So when a non-Christian is amongst our gathering, and he or she says, hang on, okay, they're not perfect, but these people seem to be operating on a different set of principles to the world. These people seem to be operating on a different set of principles that isn't fueled by selfish ambition. That is a massive signpost to the fact that we have a saviour who is so condescending that he would leave the glory of heaven to die for us. When a non-Christian is among us and they see the, the humble unity, that is a massive signpost to the fact that we believe in a gospel of grace where we don't have to compete with each other and one-up on each other to make us feel good about ourselves in God's sight. So the gospel produces unity, but that unity is also a massive signpost to the gospel. They feed off each other. And where does that where does that leave us? Well it leaves us chapter one verse twenty seven and twenty eight again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Here's where I want to finish. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The non-Christian sees the humble unity of Christ Church Mayfair. When they hear us proclaiming and contending for the gospel, that is a sign to them. They say, look, this, this body of people, this is a locus of God's saving activity in the world. 
This is where God is working out his redemption plan. This is where God is working out that plan that he planned in eternity to gather a people to himself, to enjoy him forever. When they look at us, they see that, the Bible says they have to see that to be true. And we're to say to them with all, with all humility and with all love, join us before it's too late. Yes, this is, this is where God is working out his salvation in the world. Join us before it's too late. We're going to say, yeah, join us. You are welcome. You are welcome yourself to become part of the people of God. The people for his own possession. That he's gathering to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so sorry for how many things we do do out of selfish ambition and sorry for the many ways in which we do not consider others better than ourselves and we look to the precious example of Christ and are duly humbled and we're so thankful that the example of Christ is not merely an example but it is the outworking of your plan for him to die for us that we may indeed have a righteousness that is not based on our own works or actions but that is based on faith Father, we ask that you will help us to be a people who are mightily concerned for humble unity. That you would help us to be a people who are mightily concerned for proclaiming and contending for the gospel together. And Heavenly Father, we ask that wonderfully those two things would feed off each other so that the watching world, people who were what who are now like what we were once, part of the crooked and depraved generation, may look at us and see that this is where you are working to save the people for your own possession.